one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 610 for the week of Monday, April 21st, 2014. This is our 199th episode, and it's a great one because joining me tonight is Mark Raderman. Welcome, Mark. Hello, and wow, are you sure about that? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I know it's 199 been talking about it for several weeks in anticipation of the next one. Oh yeah, I've got the counter going and I can't believe we are approaching 200. But to get to 200, we have to get to 199. And before we can get to that, we have to welcome from the Space Flight Group, Jason Ryan. Hey, good evening everybody. How's it going out there in Radio Land? It's going great. Radio Land, Internet Land, Astronomy FM Land. Shout out to you guys who are listening over there. Um how about we just get right to it then, and let's get started with our first story, and that is the most recent commercial launch, and that was SpaceX. The Falcon 9, on the third resupply mission to the International Space Station, finally launched after many delays on April 18th, which was this past Friday, at 3.25 p.m. Eastern Time, or 19.25 GMT. Two days later, on Easter Sunday, April 20th, it was grappled by the ISS robotic arm at 7.14 a.m. Eastern Time, or 11.14 GMT. Koichi Wakata being the man with the arm who grabbed it and docked it to, and berthed it to the station. So there was quite a lot of supplies in there, and uh, it took quite a long time for it to finally get off the ground. And I know, Jason, you've been chasing it, and we're finally there for the launch. So what was it like for CRS-3? Well, it was, you know, sorry, it was, it was really, uh, it's always fun with SpaceX because they are really the, the cool kids on the block. Uh, they can be a little frustrating at times, but at the end of the day, you know, they, they get the job done. And it, there were a lot of little things that we noticed that, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll point some out during the pre-launch conference. We had a, uh, we, you know, I asked the question, what happens if you guys don't make the 12 launches by 2016? And the gentleman they had speaking up there stated that, you know, he didn't think that the, SpaceX three is it's been CRS three is called by most people on the inside uh, mission had slipped all that much and he, he didn't you know he said a couple other things and basically it was like okay um but it slipped thirteen times and was supposed to last launch last year um but you know I just let it roll off my back and whatever and of course they had a helium leak and then that was a load of fun because that was slip number eleven I believe or twelve. And uh, we went home and came back a few days later. And, of course, on the 14th, Sawyer, the weather was beautiful. On the 18th, not so much. 
I really did not think it was going to go because the weather was just atrocious. But at the end of the day, it cleared up just enough for them to push that big, gigantic red button and launch the rocket and also launched this ginormous dark cloud of death that went across the, um, uh, the Falcon nine and everybody at the press site, all the space tweet people, they were, they just didn't know what that was. And I of course had, you always have your questions planned before the post launch press conference. But I mean, I, that was one of them and I didn't get a chance to answer it because uh, Elon Musk uh, said, look, I know you guys are, are I, I don't think anyone asked. I'm not sure, but I think he just went, um, I went, I went into it and he said that, uh, you know, basically SpaceX had, had hosed the pad down the night before to clean it up. And it appears to kind of muddy things up a bit. So when those nine Merlins kicked off, it basically turned that into some nasty, nasty steam. And it just blasted up the side of the Falcon 9, and we got a lot of shots in the pad. And, of course, we're all running around. We're just dying to see these images. And sure enough, I got uh, for our lead article on the launch, you can see this just nasty first stage with all the darkness all over it. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, but it kind of sold the message we get the job done. You know, we we're, we're in this space business. We're working. And then the post-launch conference kind of reiterated that because uh, in walks Mike Curry with NASA, you know, the PAO uh, public affairs, and then walks in um, um, memory serves. It was Bill Gerstenmeier, nice three piece suits, beautiful, colorful ties. And then walks Hans Koenigsman from SpaceX. Uh, comfortable pants, slacks, you know, and a nice, uh, basically like a jogging uh, type jacket, halfway zipped up. Kind of sits down, looks around, like, hey, how's it, how's it going? What's going on? So I'm like, difference there. And then uh, the press conference starts, and um, uh, Elon Musk is in on. There's a, there being he's he's answering, asking, you know, answering questions, and like halfway through, I guess he goes. Uh, yeah, everybody, I, I kind of got to go. I got another call to take. Y'all have a nice day. <laughs> He's gone. I'm like, wait a minute. Th- did that just happen? This guy is in the middle of a NASA press conference. He's like, yeah, I, I got to take this call. Y'all y'all have a good one. And, and yeah, peace out. And that was it. But, you know, uh, the, the, the launch was fabulous. It was incredibly loud. Uh, the, uh, the Falcon 9 V1.1 is, is a real workhorse. It's proven its reliability. Uh, there's some little, uh, you know, little, little detail issue things with, with CRS that I'm, I'm kind of curious about. But overall, uh, it just sealed the deal as far as when, you know, when, when SpaceX launches, there's not going to be a problem. They, uh, got the, um, they got the Falcon on the first stage. And I'm sure there's another slightly of interest topic about that mission that you're probably going to ask me about. Am I right, Sawyer? Exactly. Uh, which, by the way, first, just to go back to the press conference thing, isn't there a strict sign in the press briefing room that says all cell phones you know, must be turned off or silenced or whatever it is? And yet here he is just saying, you know what, forget that, I'm just taking this call. No, 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 I, I, I didn't say that correctly. What I meant to say, he's, he, they have a phone bridge, so he's actually calling in. Oh, it was a... Yeah, he, he was calling in, and so it's like you know, nobody could see him. He wasn't there physically. And he's like, yeah, hey, everybody, I got a, I got another call coming. Y'all be going, bye. <laughs> we kind of, we had the people at the press conference kind of, did that just happen? And then the guy that came after him apparently wasn't listening, and he's like, uh, you know, asking all these questions. And Curie's up there. He's kind of like, okay, uh, sorry, uh, Mr. Musk had to step out. Can you uh, maybe want to address that to Hans or, you know, one of the NASA folks here? And, uh, you know, they, they just, they, they rolled with it. They did a great job. But, uh, again, just. 
for those of us that have been covering NASA for a while, I've been doing this for, I guess, seven years now. And, um, SpaceX is a different animal. They're very cool. They're very laid back. But in the end of the day, when they do push the button, they launch and uh, they, they get the job done. So, I mean, you don't really need to look good at a press conference if your payload arrives uh, when it, you know, after you've launched at, at the uh, station. Right. And I think that's one thing that SpaceX has been basically portraying since day one when they, you know, you see them in Hawthorne and there are all their engineers who look like they've been out of college less than a year wearing jeans and T-shirts and stuff instead of, you know, when you think of NASA, you think of the stiff, you know, narrow ties and the pocket protectors and that kind of thing. And I think that's honestly a little bit of an indication of where commercial spaceflight is going, is that it's going to the young, it's going to the relaxed, it's going to the people who aren't so strict and who are pushing boundaries. I have no problem with that. I mean, to me, the only thing that I, I think we talked about this before the show was uh, the only thing that I'd like to see is I'd like to see them, them launch more frequently. Uh, I, I'm going to give them credit where credit is due. They get the job done. They've launched uh, Falcon 9. You have to forgive me. I'm a bit pooped, but I think there's been nine launches of Falcon 9 with no major malfunctions, no problems, no major. Uh, I mean, they lost a secondary payload, a couple of Orbcom, Orbcom satellites. But other than that, they've got it done every last time. So you got to give credit where credit is due. But, you know, it's our job in the media to kind of crunch the numbers and do the math. And even with this ninth launch, five years, nine launches means they're launching. They've launched not even twice a year, 1.8 times annually. And I broached this subject along with the 2016 deadline for uh, for it to the, the people there. And essentially, uh, the answer I got was I, I also made sure to mention that this this launch has kind of slipped quite a bit. And, and the only thing that troubled me was that there was a spokesperson on behalf of SpaceX and he didn't have his facts straight because he said that um, – that he didn't think the mission had slipped all that much and it slipped by more than a year and it slipped, uh, I think 12, at least 12 times memory serves. I'll, I'll go on the, the conservative side and say that it, they slipped 11 times. And then he said it wasn't their, um, their plan to launch just two or three times a year. And I'm like thinking, well, it might not be your plan, but it's what's happening. And how are you addressing this? Because Elon Musk went on in front of Congress and he said, point blank, we can handle all of the air forces payloads and then some. Point of fact, if you're launching at the rate you currently are, you cannot, because that means you'd have to launch at a minimum probably 12 to 15 times a year, and you're not doing it. You're only launching not even twice a year, technically speaking. So they need to uh, they need to accelerate that a bit, and I think once they get that out of the way, uh, they're going to be a monster. Uh, if you see them pushing the button once a month uh, with their drive, their attitude, and their, for want of a better word, their style – other launch service providers are going to be uh, – I, I, mean, I don't normally make predictions, but I think if they can accelerate the, the pace of launch, they're going to be a monster. They're going to be the ones to beat. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And uh, we'll talk more about Orbital coming up in a little bit. But uh, I just did a count, and I believe the count is 10 reschedules, 10 or 11. I may be miscounting, but you're close with 11 there. I was just going through every single launch, every single date it was pushed, because I know the original scheduled launch date for this mission uh, was, I believe it was the 30th of September. Hang on one second. I think if I can find, and I, they've archived it. I've had it, oh, I had it down somewhere, but my, my little uh, space monkeys rescheduled it. 
But I want to say it's at least Sawyer 11 times, if not 12. I'm so, counting 11 here. So. And the first one was like April 3rd. I actually spoke with some people there. But anyway, long story short, you know, let, let's be even more generous. 10 times and it's over a year late. So does this bode well then? Let's, you know, especially with uh, America's current um, relationship with Russia right now, can we afford a year long gap pretty much between resupply missions? I from don't. SpaceX. I, I, I mean, I, I don't have an easy answer to that because we still have orbital in play. We technically have one flight of the HTV with JAXA and one more flight at least of the. Uh, the ATV with uh, ESA. But an interesting side note to that, and I know this is going a little bit off topic, but ESA and JAXA aren't interested in in low Earth orbit anymore. At least that's what my sources are telling me. They want to go beyond. And you can see some of that through what ESA is doing with Orion. They're not interested in in the station anymore. They they kind of see it as, you know, what a lot of people I think in the space industry do, and that it's, We've been there for the last 40 years. We've been stuck in Leo. Why aren't we doing something beyond? I mean, the only people defending this, and this is my opinion, that's all that it is. The only people that are defending ISS are those that are getting paid to fly resupply missions to it or those that are fans of the companies that are doing it. Uh, They'll make it sound like the ISS is revolutionary when it's not. I mean, it's great. It's amazing, but it's not in a right orbit. In terms of conducting, you know, helping with uh, deep space exploration missions, and it, it really, um, I don't know, I, I think it's necessary, but and it, it's it's interesting and it's you know and it's got a lot of potential, but I also think it's kind of like the shuttle in some ways, and it's just a mixed bag of you know, you know goods and bads. I, I don't know. I think the ISS is still usable for science and everything, but. I can understand why people are trying to move away from it, yet here we are still trying to push it out till 2020, 2025. But, you know, I think it's going to be, at this point, who's willing to still pay the money to resupply it? And I think private is the way. But if private can't do it, then what's NASA going to do? Because um, I'll mention now, we we're going to mention this a little later, but um, Orbital Sciences has moved their next launch, their second of eight planned launches to the ISS, to June 10th. And that will be, supposedly, if it launches on June 10th, it'll be a little after 2 a.m. in the morning, making it, you were telling me earlier, Jason, the first night launch. Correct for them? Yeah, this will be the first night launch for Antares. And, you know, it's one that we're uh, over, over at SpaceFlightInsider.com. We're, I'm, I'm getting, if I had hair, Slater would be all great at this point because I'm scrambling to get our, our, our team wallops to have all the cameras and, and triggers and uh, people in place, making sure they got all the, and we're just scrambling to make sure everything gets done. And then all of a sudden it's no longer in May, it's in June. And I'm like, well, why was I running for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's June and it's going to be a night launch. Well, I don't know. Maybe we need to adjust our, uh, our, our calendars and understanding when somebody says a launch is going to be this time, you know, we just expect that, well, it's going to be delayed, you know, it may happen. But it's going to be delayed because historically what happens, just about everything gets rescheduled. Yep. It's very rare for something (laughs) to be scheduled and go. Yeah, pretty much. Now, when you hear NASA start saying things like, well, we're concerned about the planned life of the ISS due to support supply issues. Uh, When you start hearing concerns about that, 
which, you know, there may be some of that where there's an increased emphasis on some U.S. capability for crew as well as cargo that we're at the infancy of uh, today with SpaceX and Orbital. But when you start hearing more worry and hand-wringing about it, perhaps that'll be that'll be a change. Well, I mean, there's a lot of change that's going on, and I, I got to, you know, the thing is, the problem we're running into a lot is that we've mentioned this before. Uh, some folks will, they're pro to one particular quote unquote side or the other. And, you know, that side can, it's almost like Democrats and Republicans. It can do no wrong and everything it does is right. And the other side, it takes exactly polar opposite view of that. But let's take a look at the recent SpaceX launch. I mean, they, from all accounts, got their first stage to fly back and conduct a landing on the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and we actually had one of our guys up in Stennis, uh, Scott Johnson, and he talked, uh, he made sure to ask Gwen about this shot. Well, and she, uh, she said, yeah, it conducted a soft landing from what we can tell. And I've actually heard, I, I was earlier in the day. And of course I, I didn't quite follow up on it probably as well as I should, but I've heard reports that the coast guard may have recovered the first stage. I, I don't know, but. I mean, have you guys ever heard of anything like this? They had the engines, the rockets, first stage, fly back, deploy legs, and conduct a soft landing at, according to Gwen Shotwell, zero velocity. So, I mean, that's to me is, is a lot of people say, well, SpaceX is only reinventing the wheel that already exists. Uh, no, they're not. not. At least not in terms of that. They ain't. I've heard no one ever try that. And if they can actually recover the first stage, Every time, have it actually land back at the launch site. Just think about how much that could save in terms of money and time and, and, and everything. I mean, technically, if they do this right, guys, this could be a massive game changer. Okay, the thing to look out for is some mysterious entity buying an island out in the Caribbean. Because I cannot imagine any way that a rocket of the magnitude of, of SpaceX or, or anything close is going to be allowed to land in a, an area where there's public. You got to have some kind of safety zone. Well, you're right. You're dead right. But I, I would imagine that this would be something, it's just like the, the range problem they, they ran into when they tried to launch and that the range radar was out. You know, they didn't, they couldn't launch because it was out. I imagine they'll, if they try to launch it back, I mean, land it back at the Cape, the inverse will be true. This thing, this this first stage is going to have to follow that, that path uh, with no deviation whatsoever. It is going to have to come back exactly in that and on, on that flight trajectory or that, that flight trajectory, and everything has to be doing exactly what it's supposed to be. Or that range safety officer is going to push that button, and the next thing you know, you're going to have some free fireworks. So I don't know because. Th- to me, Mark, I, I kind of see what you're saying there, but that could potentially wipe out some of the costs, I think, maybe. I mean, either way, I mean, you're going to have to fl- – these days, you're going to be flying over manned you know, people that, that's population centers. You're going to be flying over them no matter almost anywhere you go these days. So, uh, But to make that cost, that argument on cost, uh, I think that SpaceX could do the best job in terms of that, in terms of – actually having it land back at the Cape, but you may be right. Well, of course, just as a contrast, I remember when uh, China launched their rover to the moon with the Jade Rabbit that um, 
or their lander with the rover, rather, that one of the things that came out afterwards is that they were paying off uh, property owners who had pieces of rocket fall through their homes because their overflight is over areas where, you know, I'm sure it's probably more rural, but they still have some populated areas and there was damage from rocket debris. Maybe that'll be part of SpaceX's business plan to have X million dollars available uh, in the event that uh, pieces and parts uh, don't go exactly where they're supposed to. I think the tough part I'm having a grasping is that a launch is, is one thing, and we've seen launches from Cape Kennedy for 50 years. But a landing? Wow. How do you, how do you get the, the warm fuzzy that, uh, that this landing is going to go exactly the way it's supposed to? And if they're a mile off, where is that mile, you know, possibly going to put a, uh, a stage that's trying to land? Well, so, you know, I don't know. Well, I actually see your point there. And if you'll remember back in the day, one of the sticking points that SpaceX had was the FTS, the flight termination software, they, or hardware, I should say. They, they didn't want explosives put in their rocket. And they ha- if, I don't remember a lot of the details, but I do remember they were not happy about it. They fought it. So, you know, I, I have to wonder, is that philosophy, that mentality still in place? And if so, would it impact what they're doing um, with, in terms of landing? All I can say is, I mean – you mentioned warm fuzzy. I think there would be a warm fuzzy because if this rocket, from what I've seen in the animation, does what it you get the landing legs deployed and there's this rocket just pulling a grasshopper flying, you know, uh, horizontally and then landing, you know, say what you will. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a SpaceX cheerleader by any sort of the imagination. I don't really care for cheerleaders all that much to begin with. But having said that. You see that nice big white stage and those big blue letters that say SpaceX, and here they are doing what no one else in the world is doing. People will be tearing down their doors, Mark, to get uh, to 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 have them as a as a uh, at be their launch service provider. And you know something, I remember when we first talked about this, the grasshopper concept. I was negative. I mean, I I couldn't really come up with anything positive to say other than, well, I guess they wouldn't do it unless it made some kind of financial sense. Well, since then, I'm looking at it and everything you've said that it'll happen. It will happen, and it'll be done safely. But how in the world can we reassure all of the parties that are part of, of the range and approval to launch to do an approval for landing, and that's that's just new territory, and it's going to take a lot of a lot of work, a lot of wrangling, and a lot of uh, give and take on both sides. And I bet it's going to happen because this whole thing, everything you've said, sure makes it a lot more real than it was when I first heard about it. And that's the you know you really touched on something there, Mark. You really did. It's I was very harsh on SpaceX in the beginning. But they won me over the old-fashioned way. They put their money where their mouth was, and they did what they said they're going to do. Maybe they're not doing the timetable they originally laid out, but they're doing it. And you can't argue with success. They're they're getting the job done. They're accomplishing the missions, and they're doing what they – so when they say, hey, we're going to land our rocket stage back in, in Cape Canaveral, you know, when I saw that video, I rolled my eyes, and I went through the laundry list of reasons why that wouldn't work. Well, guess what? This past week, if everything we're hearing is correct, happened, 
it worked. So I just need to learn to shut up when it comes to certain things. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt in the future. And then if afterwards something doesn't pan out or doesn't go the way that it is, I think that's when I'm going to put my two cents in. Because every time I say, oh, well, that first stage landing thing isn't going to work, they they grab a hold of one of my size nines and they shove it in my mouth. So, you know, I'm just saying they 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 do what they say they're going to do. And to me, there's no better business model than that. Something that strikes me as being really cool is the fact that uh, the zero velocity landing that they say that they accomplished at the Atlantic, they did it with a full payload going up. I think their pay, their Dragon capsule had a uh, didn't it have a higher uh, payload than previous previous uh, capsules? Yes, it did. That, On that they that they've flown. Yes, the the two other CRS one missions each flew just shy of two thousand pounds. So, you know, and, you know, I sometimes think if I want SpaceX to be successful, I should question them on something because sh- sure enough, it was at the CRS uh, two briefing. I think, you know, I said, hey, you've only found like flew what one thousand and change on the first CRS mission, only about under two thousand. This one, you guys aren't going to meet your minimum. Well, lo and behold, they unveiled the uh, the V one point one with its OctaWeb, you know, Merlin engines with the Merlin 1D engines, and uh, they hoisted 4,600 pounds of cargo, which is more than double what both of the prior CRS flights were combined. So, you know, there there I go tasting sole and, and laces again. So it's just, you know, I they, they doubled it. They more than doubled it. To be honest, I think all of us were pretty skeptical in the beginning of SpaceX of almost everything. I mean, we've... If you go back and listen to all of our older shows, we've talked about that. We talked about the craziness of the lander, and sure enough, they showed us up. We've talked about the craziness of their uh, ability to do all these private launches and everything, and sure enough, they're showing us up. And Well, uh, hats off to SpaceX for showing us up, I guess. In addition, there was a little bit of an issue on board the space station, which I know we were going to talk about a little bit earlier, but... Um, it was one of the things that caused one of the multiple delays, and it was with, I believe it was not only a computer, but a backup computer on board the space station, right? Jason, uh, can you fill us in on that? Yeah, thanks, Sawyer. It was actually a, a, a backup computer on the X. I don't know, Al, you have to forgive me if I... It's called the Multiplexer, Demultiplexer, or the MDM, and the, it's the EX2 version of that, the backup for, for the uh, station. And it basically controls the... There's like a a railing uh, system that allows parts to move on the outside. There's also the, of course, the solar rays that allows them to track the sun. If, if anything moves on the outside of the international space station, essentially this MDM controls it. And uh, it looked like for a while there, it was going to cause a delay, but NASA kind of looked at it and they said, okay, well, what we're going to do is if you got, when you guys launch, we'll lock the solar array into a, a fixed pattern until the dragon gets there or just prior to, and it, it was a non-issue. It actually ended up turning not being a problem. The only thing that was kind of interesting about it was, and again, you said hats off to SpaceX. Can't say it better. They had a late stow. Essentially, they they lowered they lowered the Falcon 9 down, popped it open, put the components they needed in for this MDM to be prepared during uh, this tomorrow, the the, the 23rd's uh, uh, space uh, uh, walk, and. Uh, Sealed it back up, put it back in the vertical, and that was the end of that. They, they, of course, they launched a few days later. 
Yeah, the uh, it's amazing they were able to load it in on time. And uh, the spacewalk is supposed to start. It should be completed by the time this goes out, but it's scheduled for about 9.20 Eastern time in the morning or 13.20 GMT. Um, and it will be U.S. astronauts Rick Mastracchio and Steve Swanson. They have one task and one task only, and that is the replacement. And it is expected to last about two and a half hours. Which, by the way, the location of this, if you know any space station geography, this is located on the S-Zero truss. But yeah, it's impressive that they're getting this fixed done so quickly. Because I know this was a concern about uh, launch, and they were wondering if they were going to have to delay it or not, right? Well, you know, we we found out about it on the way over, and then they said, well, you know, there's gonna there there could be possibly be a delay, and I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, oh man, here we go again. I mean, you know, another delay, and turned out, yeah, not so much. They uh, they they worked the issue, and you know, the MDM turned out to be to be a non-issue. They they said, sure, yeah, we're gonna just lock it, lock things down, have the uh, dragon be birthed, and that's a that's another thing. I don't know. I'm I'm sure most of your uh, listeners are, are are space buffs, and they know this. But Dragon doesn't dock with the station. A lot of people get that mixed up. It actually is birthed. And the difference there is like Progress and Soyuz docks. They 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 fly in, they 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 guide themselves in and they dock to the station. Dragon doesn't have that capability. It'll fly alongside uh the International Space Station and then like you said earlier, Koichi Mikado just reaches over to the Canon Arm two, grapples it, and then attaches it to the harmony uh node, the earth facing or the nadir side of the ISS. But yeah, I mean it turned out to be pretty much a non-issue which thankfully and now should just be a quick and quote-unquote easy spacewalk since no spacewalks are easy but it should be a quick fix and thankfully it was only a backup anyway so i guess that's why they said it's fine let's take the risk and let's go for it and sure enough it was a non-issue all right so that was a pretty busy round one of talking space very commercial and so let's move on to round two of two it's a relatively short show today but let's get started with the moon, and we'll begin with the end of a historic mission, and that was LADEE, which was the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer, which on April 11th, yeah, it's been that long since we've done a news show, but on Friday, April 11th, it was commanded to complete one final burn, which allowed it to crash sometime between 12.30 and 1.30 in the morning Eastern Time, or 4.30 and 5.30 GMT, on the far side of the moon that was chosen intentionally, A, out of sight of Earth, but B, more importantly, away from all historic sites. But the mission was a six-month mission, which completed all of its objectives and more, and uh, it had some pretty big studies of the moon's surface. So um, they're going to see if they can find it with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in the future, see if they can figure out exactly where it landed, but a successful mission and... Quite a send-off and salute. I guess they'll be looking for some new craters because uh, Laddie wasn't all that big. I, I read where it was the size of a vending machine, so uh, not the size we're used to, but no doubt anything even that size, traveling 3,600 miles an hour, it should make a gouge at least. <laughs> that's for sure and to answer that it's about seven and a half feet long four and a half feet wide approximately i'm sorry i don't know the meter conversion but that's not that big it was also historic with its launch being the first spacecraft to be launched to the moon not from the kennedy space center and that was out of wallops island so it had that it had a groundbreaking laser communications experiment on it um and i should add was a proud 
part of the Goddard Space Flight Center. They had some say in that where I interned last summer. They gave a talk on LADI and the laser data relay part of it. So overall, a great mission. Very cool little mission. It was nice. I like those little little things. You know, they they, they uh, LRO is one of my favorite uh, uh, unmanned flights, and I I, I love Laddie too. But I, I guess I love LRO because it was something that was supposed to herald uh, humans being going back to the moon. But I don't know any mission that goes to the moon. I love it. It's great. Plus, I did love along with LRO was the L cross and the whole quote unquote bombing the moon thing. But that was another story. And yet here we are quote-unquote, doing it again. I say those with very, very, very loose air quotes. Obviously, it's not bombing the moon, but it's a fitting end, I think, to be ending on the moon after a heck of a mission exploring it. And some great science coming out of that, and we'll see more analysis coming out of it in the coming months, too. So you mentioned that LRO was supposed to be the heralding of sending people back to the moon. Well, there's a new person in charge over in the commercial side at NASA. Jason? Yeah, uh, Sawyer, there was uh, a bit of a shakeup over the commercial crew program. They were they had Ed Mango uh, in charge for a while. And then there were some very interesting events that took place out at Kennedy involving a driver's license or the misappropriation thereof, allegedly. And uh, Mr. Mango somehow got involved with that. Not going to get too much into that, but... Uh, the lady that took over for Ed was uh, Kathy Leaders, I believe her last name is. And uh, you look at her spelling of her last name, you never think it. But uh, she's she's really got a, a tremendous background. She worked out in White Sands for a while, and uh, uh, she does a lot of work with NASA in terms of the uh, ISS, especially focused on like uh, I think she started off with like the international partners, you know, ESA, JAXA, Roscosmos, coordinating with their spacecraft going to the ISS, and then she kind of. Uh, migrated over to uh, the commercial crew side and helped out there a bit in terms of the ISS. And then the situation with Mr. Mango broke uh, and she got appointed to, uh, I think it was acting program manager. She was in that role for, God, guys, I almost a year, maybe over a year. And just this past week, NASA announced that it gave her the, uh, they made her the program manager for a commercial crew program. Yeah. It's interesting seeing some new leadership over there and, um, Hopefully that means we'll start heading back sooner with commercial ventures, which I doubt, but we can hope. Well, the first thing we've, we've heard, and I made sure to ask this several people when I was covering the launch, was when. When will we see crew riding fire atop uh, you know, commercial or um, onboard commercial uh, spacecraft? And the answer kept coming up the same. And when I did research for this article about misleaders, it was the same, 2017. And if I'm right, that's before SLS is supposed to have humans, which I think they're talking 2021, is it? Yes. And, you know, I was thinking about that earlier, too. 2017, SLS will conduct its first unmanned test flight. But 2021 is when crew is supposed to first fly on that. And I don't know if they've hammered anything hard down. I know Dan Dumbacher over over there is getting – well, him and, and Rachel Kraft both are getting sick of hearing from me. But I'm staying on top of that, trying to find out of any changes or anything. Uh, but – yeah, right now, as, as it far as SLS goes, 2000 this year, we're supposed to see the launch of Delta IV Heavy with EFT-1, first unmanned flight of Orion, 2017, first test flight of uh, the SLS stack, and then 2021, first crewed flight with the, on the SLS. Yep, so we'll see what comes out of this, and hopefully something good. 
Well, I'm kind of excited about it. I, I, I'm not sure if you guys, I've been, I tried to find this a little bit earlier on. Maybe you can tell me, um, isn't it there either CCI cap or CCT cap? One of the two is supposed to whittle down uh, commercial crew to one or two service providers this year, or is it next? CCI cap. I'm not sure when though. I don't know, to be honest. What was the other person that you uh, story that you wanted to talk about, Sawyer? Well, to finish things off, it's not me who's going to be talking about it. It's Mark, and it's not even Mark. It's someone who he interviewed, and I'll let you introduce that because it comes on an anniversary. So I'm getting to introduce that? No, this is, that was the lead over to Mark. Oh, Mark, who are you going to introduce? Well, I've got a, a little two-and-a-half-minute uh, clip from one of our favorites, Mr. Bob Cabana at uh, Cape Kennedy, and the event was April 2nd, and it was the one-year one anniversary of the signing of a lease for the Hangar N at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Now, you tell me Hangar N, and I'm thinking, oh, are there aliens there? What's in Hangar N? Never heard of it. I don't really have any familiarization with what's over on the Air Force Station side of things. And when I looked at the press release and they talked about a tour and a demonstration of non-destructive test and evaluation equipment, I thought, Yahoo, that's something I know absolutely nothing about. I've heard the word before. Maybe I can get my feet wet and uh, satisfy the, the, the tech side of my curiosity. So indeed I did. I went down there. It was the indeed the one-year anniversary. They had speakers such as Brian Bem, the president of PAR Robotics. And PAR, just to introduce the company, you know, I'm thinking, PAR Systems, who is that? And it's P, small a, capital R, P-A-R, Systems. They've been around since, like, uh, let's say 1961. And what are they good at? Well, in the VAB, look up. You see a 350-ton crane up top, the one that famously was part of the shuttle uh, assembly or stacking operation. That's their crane. 20 years ago, that was an uh, improvement that they provided for NASA and the VAB. Well, they've also got this non-destructive test and evaluation equipment. I'll tell you more about that in just a minute. Uh, it's great to be here to celebrate the one-year anniversary of this partnership. Uh, this is a unique facility uh, that provides a critical capability to the aerospace community here at the uh, Cape. And it also employs uh, technicians that have the highest standard of training in non-destructive test and evaluation. So, uh, you know, you're keeping a core capability alive here at the Cape that's critical to our future. You know, NASA is extending it's establishing the presence, the human presence, in our solar system with our eventual goal of putting boots on Mars. We're making that happen, and KSC is playing a critical role in that. And it's really important that we have the right partnerships, the right support, as we transition the Kennedy Space Center to this multi-user spaceport of the future. We are making it happen. And, uh, you know, the Space Launch System, the Orion Vehicle, the Commercial Crew Program, they're... They're well integrated. They're both critical to our future success, extending the space station to 2024. This has been absolutely critical to what we're doing, establishing that human presence in the solar system. We are making that happen. And, you know, partnerships, they're our future. 
all right? We have to have this integral partnership if we are going to be successful. And you're going to see more partnerships here at the Cape as we continue to move forward. Uh, this is going to be a great year for us. Uh, we're going to be flying the Orion spacecraft, you know, on its first test flight this year on a Delta IV at the end of the year. It's going to go further than we've gone since we went to the moon. Uh, no humans on board yet, the test flight. We are preparing the launch complex for the first flight of that space launch system in uh, fiscal year 18. And that's going to be phenomenal. Again, another test flight without humans, but it's paving the way toward that establishment of a human presence in the solar system. So I just I couldn't be more pleased with how things are going. Uh, we are making great progress, and I, I'm really happy to have a successful partnership like this, providing this core capability, critical capability, uh, for the future. So that, you know, stay with us. We're going to continue to do great things. This is our year to gain traction on all the things that we've set out to do. Uh, everything that we said we're going to do, uh, we're making happen. It may not happen as quickly as we would have liked, but it's all happening and it's going to continue to only get better. Thank you. And I think back to one of the first times at a press conference where I got to ask Bob Cabana a question about the future of Kennedy Space Center, the changes in infrastructure and finding new customers, and especially thinking about the personnel as to what was happening with the people. And uh, it, it's good to hear, even though this is a small thing, it's a small number of employees that's part of this PAR Systems facility at, at Cape Canaveral. Um, but the cool thing about it, okay, time to go, time to switch gears. Let's go to cool. Cool is that I got a demonstration from uh, one of the engineers there by the name of Catherine Lee, and she showed me the infrared thermography equipment that was used to check the condition of the RCC components of the orbiter's wing. And she showed me how it worked. They had a sample of RCC, and they hit it with a real high-intensity uh, quartz flash. And that heat that goes into the sample is detected, and they can tell the depth and the size of dings and nicks, and in this case, test sample that actually had some holes of varying depths drilled into it. And, uh, man, that was cool. And the uh, the lady that was demonstrating this, she had a head full of gray hair. And I wish I had asked, but I definitely got the impression that she had spent some time with this part of the shuttle program. And, uh, you know, you can put me around the, the coolest equipment in the world. And when I find somebody to talk to, that's that, you know, that's their life. It's their baby. And I just get really wrapped up in, in talking to the person and to realizing that, you know, they did some really unique stuff. And Bob Kamana talked about preserving a core capability that's needed for future spaceflight. And also, just for trivia, this non-destructive test and examination equipment also has applications not just with aerospace, but also energy as far as uh, nuclear, for instance. They have life sciences applications, industrial there's a uh, part of their web page, and this is uh, par.com, PAR Systems. But there's a section in their website that shows about lifts and elevators. Uh, can you say, like, aircraft carrier 
you know, U.S. aircraft carrier and lifts up from hangar deck up to flight deck. Um, they really do some cool stuff. This is a company that's been around for over 50 years that I never even heard of. And the other systems that I got to take a peek at, uh, they had the uh, X-ray that provides the capability of examining the Orion capsule, and they made a joke. They said, uh, you know, it's really pretty cool that we built this, you know, years back, big enough to handle the Orion. I wonder how we knew that that would work, and it was tongue-in-cheek because they didn't. But when they started looking at the Orion capsule and the dimensions of it, they found out that they could do an X-ray of the Orion capsule with their device. It just fit. One of the other components they looked at was the aft skirt of the solid rocket boosters. They examined the vertical welds and the circumferential weld that went around those components. Um, they've got computed tomography. They've got ultrasonic examination equipment. They've got laser shirography. And I'm pretty sure the laser shirography is the one that I saw where they had a sample of, um, like, the external tank with the foam on it. And they excited this with... Uh, high volume sound, just noise, just white noise, like static. They excited it, and they they scanned it with a laser, and they were able to see voids and the things that were in the foam that, of course, we heard about famously for years following a return to flight with uh, after Columbia. But, you know, to see the equipment that was over in the VAB, I think for most part, that's now in a exclusive hangar for PAR Systems, that they're going to be using for a variety of customers in the future. And the fact that uh, they're keeping those jobs and those people and that capability there at Cape Kennedy, even though it's a handful of people, it's something that, you know, they said we're the, we're the premium or premier uh, company. Nobody else can do the things that we do. And the president of the company said that, you know, I've got some things that I'm really excited about. But I can't tell you just yet. And I'm thinking, wow, sounds good. So just a little uh, little positive turn and a little bit of my personal excitement getting to see this tech stuff that, you know, I've only heard the words before. I never got to see it in, in action. And to see how it works and the degree of skill that's involved and the high tech, wow, that's my thing. So uh, that's it for me for now. And thank you again to, for getting that clip of Bob and bringing up something that didn't know existed over at the Cape. And there were no aliens in Hangar N. That you know of. Did they actually let you in? Well, yeah. Oh, and they had refreshments. Man, that was the cool part. But what happens to me? I spend the allotted amount of time going from test lab to test lab. And next thing I know, hey, it's time to head back out, get on the bus, and go back to the press site. And it's like... Man, oh well, I'll get lunch <laughs> later, never mind. That's right, for all you know that lunch could have been poisoned by aliens, so it's fine. Nah, I think they were okay. This this was pretty good. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be there. And so with that, that brings our 199th episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. It's always good. I don't know why that is, but, man, just cool stuff. And thank you to our next presenter. Go ahead, Sawyer. I don't want to take your take your uh, intro or outro. That's all right. And, by the way, to answer your question, I think you answered it yourself of why this is so much fun. Because it is. 
And indeed, thank you as well for joining us, Jason Ryan of the Spaceflight Group. Always a pleasure to be here. It's always fun, and I learn something every single time. I think all of us do. Even as we record this, we still learn. So, next week is episode 200, and it is a big one indeed. I will give you one hint, and that is all. It is an astronaut. So stay tuned for our very special 200th episode, which is an interview with someone who went into space and has done a heck of a lot more and has one great list of stories to tell, and you are not going to want to miss this. So we hope you'll join us for that. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.